Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here, with a last-minute update about our live show at the Leicester Square Theatre next Wednesday the 9th at 7pm. Two bits of news. Firstly, the brilliant Arthur Snell from Doomsday Watch and the Bunker is joining the bill. Arthur knows Ukraine inside out and he's going to be absolutely fascinating on the topic. And secondly, for everybody outside London, we're going to be streaming the whole thing on Zoom for Patreon backers. So that's leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets to the show and search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to sign up and stream it. We now return you to our regularly scheduled podcast. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. This time last week, we were talking to a journalist in Kyiv about the prospect of a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's no exaggeration to say that the world has changed since then. Joining me today to discuss the invasion and its implications are Bessel Britain Chief Executive Naomi Smith. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Dorian. And Ian Dunt, a columnist at The Eye. Hello. Our guest this week has swapped chambers. She sat in the House of Commons for nine years as MP for Broxstow, a staunch opponent of Brexit and leading figure in the People's Vote campaign. She left the Conservative Party in 2019 and was leader of Change UK for six months before losing her seat in the December election. She's now resumed her career as a barrister. Anna Supri, uh, thanks for being here. Absolute pleasure. This week on the show, Vladimir Putin is now targeting civilian buildings in Ukraine as his invasion enters its second week. More countries and companies are suspending trade with Russia every day as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky makes a defiant stand in Kyiv, telling the European Parliament nobody is going to break us. There have already been more than 2,000 civilian casualties and approaching 1 million refugees. We'll discuss developments inside and outside Ukraine. Then we'll take a closer look at what's being done in the UK to put pressure on Russia. A special shout to some listeners whose names we don't know. Since October, we've had 86 plates from listeners in Ukraine. We don't know who you are, whether you're Ukrainians or just Britons in transit, but whoever you are, we hope you're safe and thank you for listening. Ian, if Putin was hoping for a, a blitzkrieg strike, um, then he's been disappointed. Resistance has been fierce. Fighting's likely continue for some time. And it, it strikes me that once you start sort of shelling civilians, you've lost the chance to install a, a stable puppet government. I mean, has Russia on some level already lost whatever happens militarily? Like what what can you see would be a, a a good outcome for them? No, I mean, this could still work out OK for him. It's still possible that it works out OK. You just keep I mean, he's got this is a huge army. He has a lot of manpower there. You can just bring it in. There is a chance that that the collapse is sudden. I don't think this is likely, by the way, but this can happen, that the collapse is quite sudden and that the speed of it reverts back to his original plan, which is that this is such a sort of quick event that the sanctions eventually, you know, start to fade away when four months, five months later, people start to forget about what's happened. So it is still possible that this, you know, that he still gets what he wants. Which is, what, do you think that, because I'm not talking militarily, but politically, can he get, I mean, it depends on what you think that he wants, like whether you think that that actually he just wants some sort of partition, the Donbass breaks away, but it seems that he wants a lot more and he wants to control Ukraine. And I wonder that once you've when you look at the feeling among the Ukrainian public and it's a big country geographically in terms of population, I don't quite understand how he can control that population. I, so I think that's right. Um, and this was always the thing that confused strategists when they were looking in the sort of months leading up to this thing, that they would sit there and think, like, well, what is it? Is it all just this? Big bluff, because ultimately you're just going to take a few regions, you know, so you make everyone more scared of a terrible eventuality and then do something less terrible. Evidently, that's not the case. You can tell by the way he talks. I mean, he's talking in existential terms. I mean, for all the people who want to talk about NATO and Barra, I mean, he's talking in existential terms of he wants to essentially annihilate Ukraine as an identity mm. as much as anything else. Now, I don't see how anyone could have convinced themselves that that would be easy. And this is regardless of how quick the campaign was. Because mm. when you look at what, look at what happened in 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. okay? like all that, all that took place fundamentally was that the government decided it wasn't going to do an association agreement with Europe and said it was going to sign up to a customs union with Putin. And that was enough for people to go out in the streets to face sniper rifles, to face tear gas, to face pu- uh, plastic bullets, to have dozens killed, to stay out there in the Ukrainian winter from week after week after week and have a revolution against their government. Now, anyone's going to tell me that those people are just going to sit down when Putin takes over their country. It is, it, that, that part is just not going to happen. And there is no outcome in which that does happen. 
Um, Naomi, Ukraine has applied to join the EU immediately. Ursula von der Leyen has said they are one of us and we want them in. Normally, that is a long process. Um, What obstacles do you think there will be, even with this uh, obviously enormous amount of goodwill in Europe towards Ukraine? Well, just, you know, first off to say what a wonderful, warm, fuzzy feeling I think most of us and and listeners to this show will will have felt when we both saw their desire to join and then the the response from Ursula von der Leyen. But you're completely right. There are barriers internal and external. So the internal ones from within the Ukraine are that you are meant to have clearly defined borders. You've got to get on top of corruption. You can't have weak democratic institutions. Um, all of which, of course, you know, Ukraine does have. But it is worth mentioning that they were on track to sorting most of those out. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably part of the reason for Putin's invasion in the first place. Um, you know, he couldn't let Russians see an opening functioning democracy on his doorstep because uh, then they'd want it too. And then there's the barriers that, that the EU itself puts up. So um, the internal processes of the EU, which are, you know, completely based on rules and we have seen, of course, that they can be very flexible, much to, you know, the <laughs> the uh, annoyance of Brexiters who sort of pointed to it as this desperately inflexible institution. Actually, they've been very flexible with Brexit. Um, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the process for admitting a new member state could be a different proposition entirely now that, that it, it's looking at one that's facing a war. A, a good alternative, of course, is recognising them as a candidate member, as a gesture of solidarity and recognition of mm. their aspirations and uh, you know however even there of course there are countries that have been trying to reach candidate status for a really long time and haven't who might be upset by this move and that's countries like Bosnia that applied in, in 2016 but it, it probably is a good compromise. I mean it strikes me that so much has sort of changed I mean so much has changed in Europe for example we've had Germany and Sweden yeah. breaking decades of precedent to send arms to Ukraine you've got Finnish MPs discussing whether to apply to join NATO mm. and even autocrats in Hungary and Poland um have condemned Russia um, to some degree. I mean, has Putin strengthened overnight the very international institutions that he spent the last 20 years trying to undermine? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> and it's even been suggested that that Brexit will allow the EU to create a more robust defensive military role for itself now that Britain uh, is no longer a member. So Putin's support for Brexit could also turn out to be a tactical error for him. Um, we have been, I mean, even though obviously we're an anti-Brexit podcast, we've been critical of the EU um, over various things when, when, when we feel that it's um, failed. Mm. Has this been a good week um, for the EU in terms of showing that it can do things and in also sort of standing up for, for its values? Yes, 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 undoubtedly. Um, it's showing this new political resolve and unity to Putin's aggression. Um, And it's implementing all of these hard-hitting sanctions, um, offering military assistance, as as you said, and acting much more quickly. I think that's a really surprising thing. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the genuine criticisms you could level at the EU is that, you know, it's pretty slow to to respond to things. It likes to be very cautious. It's notoriously... um, uh, slow in, in in terms of how it usually acts, and and its response here has been much 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 faster than anything I think we would have um, expected. And it's taken really unprecedented steps, like using its collective weight to punish Russia for its aggression, financial sanctions, you know, re- removing banks from SWIFT international payment system, the no fly zone over the EU for all Russian aircraft, banning state owned broadcasters from the EU financing weapons and deliveries and all of that stuff. And, you know, it's never done any of this before. And I think when you look at Schultz's rapid increase in German defence spending, combined Mm -hmm. with Macron's emphasis on this, I think he's calling it strategic autonomy for the EU, is going to help reshape EU foreign policy completely. And I think think that's great. And I think it's it's been a brilliant week for the EU. Mm -hmm. Um, Anna, you're an MP um, during Russia's annexation of Crimea in in 2014, an invasion that, as Raphael Baer pointed out, Boris Johnson uh, later blamed on the EU. Why was more of a red line not drawn then? I'm actually, I mean, remember, I was a defence minister at that time. Um, I'm not aware. I'm really searching my memory bank now. I'm actually not aware of any discussion. That's, that's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? Of course, with the benefit of hindsight. And of course, all of this is part of the problem, is that, you know, we... We, the real problem, start, it started with, I think, 
when Parliament made a dreadful error, and I remember it very, very clearly. When the vote was taken, we were recalled in the summer of, uh, what would it be, 2012? Was it 13? About the Syrian bombing, the bombing of Syria. And we were recalled and we came in and David Cameron lost the vote. And, and it's just for the record, I just got really quite pickled off today when I heard Mark Harper, a Conservative MP, saying it was all the fault of Labour because Labour didn't support the government. Actually, enough Conservatives at that time didn't support the government that it fell. But in any event, we didn't do the right thing then in Syria when we should have done, when Assad was was using uh, terrible weaponry against his own people, and we know with the backing of Russia. And then because we wouldn't do the right thing, Remember, Obama then sort of went, well, okay, the Brits aren't going to do it. We're not going to do it. And the world let down the people of Syria. And I think it was then that Putin knew that basically we lost what is, I don't know what you'd call it. Some might call it the stomach for a fight, the moral, uh, the feeling that we should do the right thing and not just think about our own little self-interest. But that was when the rot really set in. And that's when Putin knew that he was base, he could basically do what the hell he wanted. That's my view. And then, of course, in Crimea, which was your original question, I don't even remember. I have no memory mm. of any real discussion. And actually, I think that extends out into Parliament, into the media at large, never mind the British people. We, we let it go, didn't we? It was easier to let it go. But this time... My God, it's really, really struck ordinary folk. Do you think we also failed on the issue of um, refugees? Because now there's, there's talk of um, countries across Europe, you know, welcoming Ukrainians, um, who are, of course, you know, Europeans. So I suppose there is more of a sense that in some sense they are people like us. And there are Syrians, there's a remarkable piece in The Guardian of Syrians rooting for Ukraine from afar because, you know, obviously they were they also experienced Russian bombs, but also wondering why they didn't get that sort of solidarity. Is that another thing to look back on and go, well, why are we willing to welcome hundreds of thousands of refugees now and that we just weren't? Well, most of us were willing. Most of us are willing to accept hundreds of thousands of, of Ukrainians. Um, you know, we, we all saw that clip of Edward Lee and there was another Conservative MP who stood up and made, frankly, I mean, apart from them being inaccurate, hugely offensive uh, comments in the House of Commons yesterday. Edward Lee, I'm not going to call I'm not going to call him Sir Edward Lee because he doesn't deserve it, um, saying that the people of Lincolnshire, you know, the people of Lincolnshire had had enough of Eastern Europeans. I mean, just a pack of lies when he talked about the threat to jobs. You know, there are huge vacancies Anyway, don't get me going because I'm in danger of being you know, set a lit on this because I have long, as, as, as many of you may know, been um, staunchly in favour of immigration, never mind refugees. I didn't think we had to make that argument. I thought in our, there was a time in our country when that was a given, that mm. we would take people in who were fleeing war and terror. They're packing up and leaving everything because something terrible and traumatic literally had happened on their doorstep. Forgive me, we have to be very careful about the language we use here because it actually says a lot, doesn't it? We, the, the Ukrainians are like us. What, because they're white? That seems, that's, I suppose, is what some of the sort of Syrians are sort of saying, but other people from other areas in the Middle East are going, it's sort of different because they're white. Well, they're right. Yeah. <laughs> but to be fair, to be fair... The Ukrainian situation has come along and it's really smacked ordinary people right between the eyes. And in its awfulness, there's also a, a simplicity to it, isn't there? There's a country called mm -hmm. Russian with a man called Putin who looks to be mad. And here's a country called Ukraine, which people have yeah, pretty much heard about. Mm -hmm. And for no reason whatsoever, no reason whatsoever he's rumbled in so that by way of example the guy who came to fix our boiler yesterday was boiling up himself with anger he's just an ordinary bloke genuinely angry got a bit of an indication he might have voted for brexit because we had a long chat and he said he said any one of those people can have our spare bedroom to be fair to the british people in syria 
it was kind of, well, who is this guy Assad? I don't, I've never been to a country really like Syria. I've kind of been to a country like a bit like Ukraine. It's complicated. I don't know about it. I've, I've never really studied it and so on and so forth. And so there wasn't that, that feeling of empathy, not because we don't like Syrians, but just because he, this Ukrainian business has come out of the blue at people. And it's really yeah. hit home. And, you know, when Johnson and Patel said that, you know, we weren't really going to take many Ukrainians unless you could fill in 50 forms and, you know, show your income. And I think that being positive, what this has made people understand is that you only become a refugee, not because you just fancy a trip to Britain to claim our benefits, excuse me, but because, and they are actually seeing this in a way that they've never seen before because of social media. And, of course, the mm. extraordinary presence of the media out there. You actually see somebody literally picking their bag and fleeing with their child or children tucked under their arms, trying to get on a train, trying to escape. And, my God, it's made people realise, I hope, what the nature of a refugee is and why you absolutely have to offer them safe haven. Um Ian, there's been so many measures taken against Russia, and I think some of the economic ones are, are, are less easy to comprehend. Almost you can understand, it's much easier to understand, like, you know, Eurovision and FIFA and, you know, um, you know, the Batman not being released in Russia and stuff like that. Then it is some of these kind of like detailed, more detailed stuff. I'm not sure how many people were like super up on the Swift system <laughs> until the last few days what what's the latest on the economic sanctions and which ones do you think matter most one thing matters the sanctioning of the central bank of the russian central bank to the point i mean and i and i'm not exaggerating when i say this that i think essentially at this moment there are two front lines in the war okay the front you have the battle zone that is happening in ukraine and then you have the financial assault on russia now that is economic warfare of the highest order i, I can't against the major economy we've never seen anything like that in our lives it is huge. And let me explain a bit how it works. So Russia has about $630 billion um, in foreign currency reserves. These are a shield, basically. Like, you know, when people come at you with sanctions, your currency is going to fall in value. So people are going to they're going to be sat there with rubles. They're going to be like, fuck, I don't fucking want this thing. You edge, know, this edge, place. Edge. Exactly. Just get rid of Just get rid get rid. And as people do that, the value of the currency falls with your foreign reserves. Foreign reserves are sat, they're not sat in Russia, that's the crucial part. There's a, there's, they've got some gold in these bars in Russia, but the rest of it's overseas. You have it in a couple of different forms. One of them, you have it just as cash, and the other one is you have it in securities. So you have it in a series of investment assets, basically. Let's say one of them would be like a Japanese sovereign bond, right? So you just say, right, sell the products, sell the products, exchange the cash. Then we take that money, those dollars, those sterlings, those euros, and we convert it into rubles. That way you're increasing demand in the currency. And by virtue of that, you're stabilizing it so it doesn't fall too much. That is your main defensive shield against sanctions. And for ages, we thought, well, that's a pretty fucking big shield, like 630 billion. It's a crazy amount to have there. It's hefty. And everyone thought they can't be damaged. But it turns out they can be damaged. Because Ursula von der Leyen uh, and the Americans came out over the weekend and went, we're going to fucking have that, mate. Now, that is a crazy thing to have done. I mean, most of the sort of analysts I've been speaking to this week were just like kind of gibbering wrecks on the floor, just being like, oh, wow, they went for the, they went for the nuclear option on the, on the, you know, on the one hand, we know that we can't intervene militarily. Yeah, yeah, but we're not allowed to use that word, word. Ian. <laughs> that metaphor is off the table. Okay, yeah, no, fair enough. And that, that's what they've done. They've, they've gone for that option. That is a big, big, big option to have gone for. Um, now, the reports um, from inside Russia, I mean, there's some, it's some very small things. I'm not sure if you saw these pictures of people queuing on the subway with mm -hmm. change because they had to use change because suddenly they're suspended from like um, all the apps that you can use to pay on your phone. You know, this is these very sort of little things that you get used to. And then there's these kind of big things where there's pe people basically saying their company has collapsed in a week. Um, what is happening to the Russian economy overall, not just to, I suppose, to oligarchs, but... Oh, yeah, this is not... I mean, this is really targeted at the economy as a whole. This, mm -hmm. is, a, this is an attempt to break the currency. Right. I mean, this is, that is what that is. Yeah. Um, and it is intended to trigger bank runs. And that is exactly what it is doing. When you see those queues outside of ATMs, that is what it is doing. Now, one of the things that happens when this takes place is, you know, let's say you're the, the Russian Central Bank. You're like, well, fuck, we need more rubles. So what are we going to do? We're going to start printing them. Okay. 
So as soon as you start printing them in that kind of capacity, there's a danger of inflation. Yeah. But then there's a secondary danger. And that's that you essentially create two markets, right? You have a market for dollars, you have a market for rubles. So everyone wants to hoard the dollars, which have real value, and they're going to ask more and more for their products in rubles because they're scared that it doesn't really have any value. And that then puts you in a situation where you can enter into hyperinflation. This is why the, the Russians have not opened the stock market. I mean, we're on Wednesday right now. Yeah. They didn't open it Monday. They didn't open it Tuesday. They're not opening it today. They may have opened it by the time this podcast goes out. I think it's perfectly believable that they won't. If they do, that is something that is worth keeping your eyes on. They've introduced capital controls. They're trying to make sure that they can ramp down on this. They put interest rates at 20%. Yeah. Okay, to give you an impression of how fucking of how sketchy it is for them right now. This is absolutely pulverizing stuff. So what's the What's the aim? Because, I mean, there is, of course, going to be pe- there are going to be people, you know, and, and Russians who do not support Putin, although, you know, a, a, a majority do. But this is obviously going to hurt all kinds of people. What is the goal yeah. of these sanctions? We don't. I mean, this is this is where things get really sketchy and we don't know the answer. OK, because a lot, like a lot of analysts will sit there and think this can strengthen him. Uh, others will think. It weakens him. I mean, right now, I would say that Russia is, looks like it's somewhere back in 1991, right? And what was his whole promise to the Russian people of I get you past the humiliation of 1991? Yeah. And yet at the same time, you know, if you feel, you know, he is propped up as a medium between elites. He's essentially the kingpin between different elite sort of individuals. If they feel as long as they're still making something and as long as they're still at the top, they might actually turn to him to a greater extent than they are already. There's a caveat to all this that's worth mentioning, which is the energy carve out. And that's why there's been a unified Western response, because commodities trading, which includes oil, includes gas, includes all the things the Europeans need to keep getting now, and which Russia wants the money from, are largely excluded through a series of loopholes, not completely, but largely excluded. Some people look at it and go, well, that's just a fucking gaping wound in your strategy. Other people look at it, and I'd say this is the majority view, and going, no, that's quite ingenious in a way. You've kept Europe and America together by exempting energy, but also you've kind of got a valve there. where you, There were people, you know, I've been speaking to this week who just think, you're just about to, to asphyxiate the, the Russian economy in one go. You know, and you don't know how chaotic that gets. You don't know if that can't lead to an escalation militarily by virtue of how aggressive it is economically. But at least if we don't affect energy, we keep the West together. We don't close off supplies to, to yeah. Europe. And we make sure that it might not be quite as catastrophic. And it's always there in the back pocket in case he does something else terrible. That means that we need to introduce another level of punishment. Um. Anna, I think there's definitely an emotional thing. Every time I'm just like listening to the news or reading anything, I just I have this kind of such kind of rage and I'm just like, smash, smash the economy to atoms. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And then I just think, though, actually, you know, think, think twice there. Do you worry about the um, unintended consequences of, of su- I mean, Ian used the word sort of economic warfare, of being so punitive? Could, can that backfire? Well, that's the danger. But... No, I, I, I think we're, I said we, I think, I think the EU's, I, I agree so much with what Naomi said, I think they've played an absolute blinder actually and they've really stepped up, haven't they? And there is a danger, but I think, I just think that we've also got cute, everybody around the world at making, trying to make this message clear to the people in Russia that the baddie is not them individually, it is Putin, and always putting it back on him and back on him and trying desperately to see if we can, by doing all those things, make Mm. the Russian people in some way step up against him. Because I think you said that the Russian people undoubtedly support him. I I didn't think it was as clear-cut as that. Not undoubtedly, but overwhelming. A majority do. There, there seems to be a, a sort of, you know, rally around the flag thing. Largely, I mean, of course, there is a great deal of propaganda uh, in, in Russia. But there's all sorts of attacks almost going on to get, uh, attack isn't really the right word, but means going on to make to try and make sure that enough people in Russia are getting proper information, because obviously you can't rely on their own state broadcasting. So that they're beginning to question and beginning to turn on the people mm. that are, and most notably, on Putin. So, but this emotional thing, you're right. Thank God someone like me is in charge in government because, you know, last night I was just so, I was just so upset and angry. 
And and I saw this wonderful president put out this tweet saying, we want a no-fly zone. And I still struggle with this um, because, you know, I know that it's not the, the thing that everybody says, we must not do that. But then mm. there's this big chunk of me that says, well, when do we stand up to Putin? And, and then I say something even perhaps more controversial is, you know, I thought we had nuclear weapons as a deterrent. So on the understanding that there was an equality of arms and one side would never actually use it because the other side would in retaliation. And now it's like, well, no, I mean, we can't do anything against Putin because if we do, he'll use nuclear weapons. So why, do you why, think that, why have we wasted all you, that money? Am I being ridiculously naive? Well, do you think that, that I wonder, but the, remember Richard Nixon talked about the madman theory where it was you, you wanted the other side to think that you were crazy enough to use nuclear weapons, even knowing that, you would suffer the retaliation. Yeah. And so I wonder whether the fact that loads of people are going, it doesn't make sense for Putin to invade Ukraine. And the fact that he did it suddenly makes people think... Oh, he is mad enough. Oh, he is mad enough to use nuclear weapons, even knowing that they would then, I, you know, I would not, rain down on Moscow. I would not presume to know enough about Russian politics, the people around Putin, or even Putin himself, except he scares the hell out of me, and I think he is unhinged, but whether or not actually he would push the button, because, you know, he knows the consequences of that as well. Yeah, I am. I was actually quite, I don't say this very often, but I thought Boris Johnson was correct this week, and I haven't really ever seen him. I can't even remember a time I've ever seen him tell the truth before. But that moment, that that meme moment now mm. where, you know, you have the Ukrainian um, journalist, I think she's the director yeah. of an anti-corruption yeah. unit, sort of railing against him on the no-fly zone. It's sort of he, – he, his answer for the first time that I can ever remember was entirely honest. Yes, I agree. It's just like, I'm sorry, and this is awful, and we can't. Yeah. But yeah. We can't. We can't. Like you, and, and the, risk, is, the risks are too great. Yeah, it's and, and it's essentially utilitarian. And it is everyone's heart says something else, but everyone's head knows the truth, which is that you do make calculate. This is fuck. I don't even like saying it, but it's the, well, yeah, it has to be said. We do make calculations with lives in foreign policy. Yes. And we do say that actually to think of how many other hundreds of thousands or more could die if this is something that incre- that escalates. That is a calculation that we make and that we have to make. You have to make that calculation. Um, Naomi, when we're talking about kind of certain kinds of global leadership um, being restored after a whole period where we were just going, you know, th- th- this is falling apart. The <laughs> yeah, order, yeah. international order is falling apart. Um, do you think Joe Biden has been making the right calls? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think he... What, you remember a few days ago when he said that oh, we'll air left you out, Zelensky. Don't you worry. And it was like, read the room, Joe. Read the room. You know his very presence <laughs> in military gear, leading his country. By contrast with Putin squirreling himself away in a palace in you know in a darkness, sitting you know f- many feet away from. Yeah, when like you sit at the same end of the table as his own people, you know. Um, it's like when we go for dinner. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think since then he he has uh, obviously you know played a blinder on sharing intelligence. Um, you know he's obviously in terms of the discussion we've literally just had has got to be incredibly careful in terms of ensuring no escalation on the, the you know the nuclear front. Um, some journalists are saying that he should have done more, but uh, you know I think he he corralled. Uh, a united response from the West and included countries outside of Europe and the Anglosphere, including yeah. you know countries like Japan. So yeah. I think all, all credit to him. I, on that I, front. I also have to say that for the, for a few weeks now, that Biden has been saying that American intelligence was telling him that Putin could invade Ukraine any day, and I have seen a lot of tweets and articles of people mocking that and going. Oh, well, it hasn't happened. And oh, why are you claiming this? And are you trying to distract from your domestic problems and so on? And it turned out that he and American intelligence yeah. were correct. They were, but he that. is in trouble. He is in trouble. You know, he's being blamed now for the rising, you know, cost of everything. Mm. Uh, he's being blamed for the failure on Kabul. Um, and, and you know, he, he is getting pounded from many quarters in the US at the moment. And I, I fear that we're ending up in a situation where we are going to have 
our own general election around the time of a, a difficult presidential election in the US. It, it now seems we we thought that maybe our general election would be quite a bit sooner. I think this war mm. now has laid that to rest and we're mm. looking at a 2024 election. Has but, Zelensky, I mean, he's currently the world's most sort of admired politician. I think, you know, there's always a sort of caveat. Mm. It's like, well, we don't know. We know we know about all of his positives. It's not like we've given it. We, we, everybody's got a keen analysis of his sort of, you know, economic agenda and you mm. know his privatization plans and so on so he's obviously not a saint but how has he how has he won the information war yeah. in, in in an incredible way and in a way i suppose we were talking with anna earlier about syria and there's many areas around the world conflicts mm. around the world where there isn't that figure yeah. and there isn't that consistency of messaging that, that creates international sympathy like what's he done so well so uh, i've already sort of said his presence i think that is the most crucial thing he's remained on the ground he's with the soldiers he's in the military gear he's keeping himself in harm's way uh, unlike putin lesser leaders would have gone by now and formed a government in exile i putin completely underestimated him and and his sort of calm reassured tone is in stark contrast to putin's as well i think there's also just you know the 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 underdog versus the evil you know goliath um metaphor there that it's it's just really clear cut as to who the aggressor is and who the oppressed is um public resistance i think all of the videos of citizens uh you know kneeling in front of tanks and you know making molotov cocktails after they finished in the office that day and you know all of that i think is just really really helping to win the information war some of it will be propaganda you know we don't know how much of it is mm. you know totally true and the you know the, the the myth building around the ghost of kiev and the heroes of snake island and the soldier that apparently you know took his own life to blow up the bridge uh, as as the russians were advancing because there wasn't enough time to hit the detonator remotely some of them are real some of them are not but i think they're giving this this really sort of good world narrative of of Ukrainians uniting and being able to mm. cheer and emulate and so you know and, he, and he's putting out a lot of those videos himself um so yeah I, I i you're right he's done very well on the information war and i think that's just because he's there and present and and it's, and it's interesting perhaps the example where where people would go because i remember it was there was a, it was a joke right he was a comedian ukraine has elected a comedian mm -hmm. just like america just like britain you know um and yet his sort of media skills you know, because he was on like Strictly Come Dancing, the equivalent of Strictly Come Dancing, mm -hmm. wasn't he? He was the voice of Paddington. He, he's, he's he, there's a five-minute video on YouTube of him playing the piano with his penis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wasn't. I'm not sure he's literally doing that. Where I, think, I expected that sentence to end. Um, <laughs> no, but it's kind of an example of somebody who is used to being on the media and knows how to communicate and is not a clown. Can I just say, he's actually he's not a politician in the normal sense. You know, he hasn't done all the things that people do when they become prime ministers and presidents, that he had this other life. And therefore, I, he is, he's just honest and brave and brilliant. But he's also got the, the media skills that he's gained in that former life. Doran, you've been taking one for the team this week, haven't you, and watching what the hell is going on mm. on the furthest reaches of the left and right across Europe. The guys who've associated mm. themselves or justified Putin in various yeah. ways throughout mm. the years and are now furiously back backtracking out. How's that going out for them? I'm interested in what the, the long-term consequences of this will be because there are so many people who have been exposed as, you know, I don't say want to say pro-Putin, but certainly making excuses for Putin, certainly showing sympathy towards Putin in the past. And, you know, tr that's Trump, you know, is that I mean, the Republican Party is a car crash. But, you know, I wonder whether considering that most Republicans are actually with Biden on this, mm. whether this hurts Trump. I wonder, looking at, say, George Galloway now, would he convince so many gullible people to vote for him in the next by-election? Um, I look at what's happening in the, in the Labour Party and basically that, that generation, the, the Corbyn McDonald, that, that's finished now. Mm -hmm. And then Corbyn is not coming back. And then most interestingly, I think in France, where Macron, three of the people that Macron is up against, Le Pen, Zemmour and Mélenchon. So it's two on the far right, one on the far left. They are all backpedaling on their previous warm words for Putin. And that seems huge. And Macron is feeling quite, I mean, it, it, I, find it rather, I find it quite gross to talk about elections in the context of a war. Mm -hmm. But I do think that people, the mask has come off a lot of people. 
And now they're trying to go, oh, no, I didn't mean that. Oh, I'm obviously not pro-Putin. Of course I condemn the invasion. And yet, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, they're on the record. Yeah. And I think that is going to have big implications. And I, as somebody on the left, I think I'm hopefully that a lot of people on the left are going to see that they've been endorsing some pretty sinister stuff. The Telegraph went after a few um, RMT guys during the tube strike this week, sort of on Putin's softness, is it? Or any danger of a kind of this mutating into a new red scary kind of thing rather than the more justifiable character that it has right now? This, I think, is the flip side. This is this is the sort of thing I, I, I worry about where it could be used to – now, those individuals The Telegraph is talking about, yeah, I think I, I, I don't like them. You know, I think they're they're part of that toxic foreign policy, which is, has done so much damage to the left. But that's not when you consider how many strike, how many workers were striking. I mean, basically everyone, the entire network was closed down, yeah. not just the drivers, but started workers and, and all that. And to try and suggest that this is kind of yeah. like a, a pro-Putin strike, that worries me. It's the telegraph. But I think we do have to be careful. Another part of it is, of course, you don't want to demonise every Russian. There's some people going, throw out every Russian student. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Roger Gale. Ban every Russian film. You know, it, it's like I do think we have to be careful not to do what – because we've got history. You can look at the demonisation of Japanese Americans during mm-hmm. World War Two. You can look – I mean, virtually any conflict. And so th- I suppose – I don't think that's a huge danger at the moment. But if it goes on, I do think we have to remember not to be kind of – getting to Red Scare. Um, has anyone else had this feeling this week of just, it's like this kind of sliding doors world that you're living in, of like suddenly this, you get these moments of surging positivity, of just looking like, holy shit, like the fucking EU is actually sorting itself mm. out. Like it understands what the dream of Europe yeah, yeah. is and mm. not just the technical part of it. Mm. That the West sort of is recognising its values and the threat and can actually unite around it. And then a second later, oh, yeah. you're just like, Oh, it's it's going to be World War Three. We're all going to die. Yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you're just like, it's almost like the stakes of good and bad have suddenly risen alarmingly. And I think that's what explains this weird emotional state. So much mm. many of us are in. Like, I can't, I can't not look at my phone. I haven't read a fucking book, a page of a book. I haven't seen a second of a movie since. It's just like you're just plugged into it. And I think it comes from that. It just feels like this seminal moment that whichever way this thing goes we are going to look back on it as right now this is when a sort of direction for our politics got decided on a global scale next a question from a patreon backer in but your emails remember if you search patreon oh god what now podcast and sign up this could be you cluttering up our inbox this is perhaps the bleakest but your emails that we've ever had from daniel van Burzen. <laughs> War in Europe, irreversible climate breakdown, a global pandemic, the beginnings of real economic damage caused by Brexit, and an unsinkable, obnoxious prime minister with far-right tendencies. Things feel pretty bleak right now, but historically, just how bad is this? When was the last time in history that being a Western liberal felt this horrible, and how did it all turn out? Desperately seeking comfort here. Well, I would like to start by going, if you were on the left, the 50s were pretty bad. If you were like a liberal, if we're talking across the board, you know, liberal, left, centrist, whatever, I would say the 30s didn't turn out well. Not saying that that's what's going to happen. But the question was, when was the last time? Um, And I would say probably the 30s. Is that too? I mean, the 70s were pretty, people were pretty stressed out then. Um, And the early 40s were pretty... Pretty bad. I mean, actually, the thing is, it, in, all, in all of the books, like, whenever I'm writing a book, I'm going back through the decades and it's yeah. just like, there's just, and this is absolute kind of, at any point you can see people just going, everything's going down the tubes, you know, there's going to be nuclear war tomorrow, um, everything's awful, everything's lost, you know, apart from like one, the summer of 1995. What? The summer of 1995, when everything was great. Everyone was like really happy. In Why? Some, Were you... The summer of 1995 was like peak Britpop. It was, you know, everybody was happy then. No, the 90s. You know what I'm saying? Like, apart from the 90s, like, virtually every period has had lots of things for people to be really Yeah, and I think, you know, to put a slightly positive spin on it, yes, there have been horrendous wars followed by horrendous pandemics as opposed to horrendous pandemics followed by horrendous wars. And, you know, we're, we're flipping history on its head a bit. But at least now we do have amazing capacity to roll out vaccines and 
yes, we're not doing that fast enough for huge swathes of the world, but life expectancy, infant mortality, you know, so many of the markers are so much better now, even though we're hmm. we're facing horrors that of course we've we've felt in history before. So don't don't be too doom and gloom. Um I mean do be because everything is Awful. Anna, Anna, do you have a cheering <laughs> historical perspective to, to add? Well, I think I'm definitely the oldest of the four of us. So I remember the 70s very well. I think that being really serious about this, the, the, the thing that really hits me is those sights of people getting on trains, as we talked about earlier, with you know children under their arms and scrabbling on, onto trains to get away from awfulness and bombing and all the rest of it I think the thing is is that for my generation and I think for your generation we all thought that was in the past that is the Mm. huge shock is to see stuff that we'd seen in scratchy black and white photographs and films actually is is happening in Europe as if it as if the passage of time never took place. That is the terrible shock. And for somebody of my age and my generation, the state that this bloody country is in, and I look at my daughters who are 30 and 31, and I feel, God, I'm glad I'm not their age. Mm. I actually feel in so many ways, even though, you know, you're right about vaccines and infant mortality and all those other things, but actually in so many other ways, we've gone backwards. I think in our social attitudes, on our in our small L liberalism, there's real evidence that we've just gone backwards. So I look back on my 60s, when I was a child, with where racism was openly said, you know, people didn't mm. hold back and all the rest of it, where the plight, where, where women uh, were treated in a certain way and all the problems that women had. And, and I just look at this, where we are, this country, and I'm, I'm just beginning to think we've just raced back to the 60s and the 70s. Look, I find, I suppose, that historical context is always, I, I find almost in every era people are saying things are terrible. And even though I jokingly said, oh, summer of 95, wasn't that good? Bosnia. <laughs> you know, hideous things happening then. And when I said, you know, the sight of the people on trains, and I remember then people going, can't believe this is happening in Europe. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I suppose there's always like context, context, context. There have been awful people are very often. I mean, they, these things are objectively very bad. I just think it's it's good not to think that these are the worst. Not yet, anyway. But we'll be back next week and we'll find out if it's gotten any worse. Next week, we're back at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. That's Wednesday, the 9th of March at 7pm. Ros, Dorian, Ian and Minnie will, as usual, try and extract some joy from the mess the world is in. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. I'll be back on stage at the Leeds City Varieties on Sunday, the 3rd of April, a 2pm matinee show with me, Dorian, Ian and Alex Andreu. And then on Wednesday, the 8th of June, will be live at the Old Market Theatre in Hove with Roz, Ian, Dorian and Alex. All tickets are on general sale now. Patreon people get a discount on all tickets. So search Patreon, Oh God, What Now podcast and sign up for VIP access. We're really looking forward to seeing lots of you there. Next this week, Boris Johnson attended Mass at a Ukrainian church last week to a standing ovation. But the government is under pressure to do a lot more for Ukraine, and they're also pushing through some of their most nefarious bills during the crisis. Um, Naomi, the UK is following the US in sanctioning Russian banks. We're apparently working through quite a long hit list of oligarchs to sanction. Roman Abramovich is seeking to sell Chelsea. Yeah. Um, So there's there's a lot of unrest in London grad. Um, Does this mean, is it too soon to say that this means the end of a certain era of um, Russian influence in London? I hope not, but the government is being lethargic. I'm worried that anything I say now is going to be out of date by the time the show goes out because I think Johnson is announcing more people that he's adding to the list of, of those that are going to be stripped of their assets. But they do have the powers to, to strip assets of oligarchs uh, backing Putin now, and they aren't. Um, and instead, they are giving them time to sell their assets. So the Treasury unit that is in charge of enforcing sanctions um, sort of quietly slipped out this 30-day license 
licence granting permission for any individual to wind down uh, any transactions. So the government is lacking both determination and consistency in closing London grad loopholes. One thing I would quite like to point out, though, is that Leila Moran used her parliamentary privilege last week to name 35 oligarchs and, and Putin regime figures alleged to be involved in the poisoning of Navalny. Um, and 19 of the 35 remain uh, unsanctioned by any country around the world, and 32 of the 35 remain unsanctioned by the UK. Yeah, and is it good to be reminded of Valley? It's good to be reminded of, of Salisbury. It's good to be reminded of, of many Vinyanko, things. Going back, going back to going yeah. back to Chechnya, you know. One of those things that really angers me when people are just sort of, ah, oh, well, this is what you get from NATO expansion. It's just like there is a whole load of stuff uh, that Putin has done, a real pattern of behaviour which has uh, really nothing to do with um, countries joining NATO. Um, so is the EU, the EU, you would say, is kind of like a step ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, uh, 11 of them have been sanctioned by the EU. Another one has been sanctioned by the UK and the EU. Uh, another one by the EU and Canada. Another one by the EU and Canada and the USA. Two by the EU and Canada and USA and UK. But it's the UK that, that, that's trailing. Um, Anna, this didn't start in 2010, but have the Conservatives been too complacent, do you think, about allowing oligarchs to influence the city, to um, shape the property market and indeed to donate money to the party? Yes. Next question. (laughs) I have to say, I never went to any of those black and white uh, um, balls and the summer ball. And I'm not going to say who, but I remember I said, look, I, I just hate this stuff taking money from people who I, I just who I don't like politically. I'm mean, a very nice person. I have no idea. Didn't want to find out. Um, and I was told, look, I know it's really tough. You have to sit next door to somebody who's pretty, you know, disgusting. But, you know, we need the money. And I thought I'd rather not have the money. Thank you very much. Do you think there's any prospect of them returning any of the money or – no. At least declining no, to take it's any all, It's all spent. And it wasn't mentioned earlier, but I don't know who's doing it, but all power to their elbow. I think they're, cl- they're calling out people like the uh, the lovely Dominic Raab, who took somewhere, I think it was in like something like £23,000 from a named, uh, a named donor who turns out to be Russian. Now, obviously, as we know, just because somebody's Russian doesn't mean to say that they're sympathetic to Putin, but there is some very strong links there that these are oligarchs. And I can honestly say I never took any, I never took money from somebody who had been born in Russia and had come here. Uh, And I don't understand what the hell has been going on in the party, because this was certainly um, not in my time. I never got that sort of funding. I wouldn't have wanted it anyway. Um, but something has gone badly, badly wrong. And I think that it's not just the Tories. I mean, I think it's the, the whole of the city and too much of, yeah. of those in, who run our economy. It, you know, they just smelt the money, didn't they? And they just couldn't help themselves. And any sense of morality just got stuck to one side. And London has just become the capital of, of, the, of laundering dirty money. And it's awash with it. While we've been on air, the Electoral Commission released uh, new figures showing the Conservatives accepted another £80,000 from Lubov Chernukin in the last quarter. She's the wife of the former finance minister, I think, under Putin. I think it was either finance or defence. I'm pretty sure it's She's finance. not the one who had the photograph um, with Theresa May and, and the minister. Yes, that's right. She, she's the most substantial mm-hmm. female donor to British right. politics in the history of this country. As far as I, I was so pleased I wasn't a minister at that time. Well, I wouldn't have gone anyway, but um, it's difficult <laughs> like that. Ian, um, Labour very kindly offered to help out um, with some changes to the economic crime bill uh, to stem the flow of Russian money. Um, what can be what can be done there? Like, what's the sort of um, what, what's the detail of it? What's the part of the bill that could be changed? Well, the bit that they don't seem to have put into it is giving the statutory investigatory powers to companies house. Um, and this is the thing that's been asked for for I can't even tell you. I think probably. Uh, at least six years, and I think probably coming up to a decade now, mm. of just they need to be able to interrogate what the information is that is left with them. They need to be able to identify the directors of companies when they're put there. They need to have sanctioning power, whether it's fees or whether it's um, stripping them a position or whether it's criminal, in order to ensure that the information is accurate so that you can track down the network of shell organizations and, and, and how that, that operates to sort of open London up to Russian money. Now, we were promised this bill. I don't want to remind it, but I mean, let's just fucking say it again. You know, we were promised this bill 
Over and over, it wasn't in the first Queen's speech on the Boris Johnson's administration, it wasn't in the second Queen's speech on the Boris Johnson's administration, now suddenly it's come out of nowhere, but it still looks pretty defanged. And I would point to the way that this correlates to what we've seen so far on sanctions, that look, at the moment, and this might change, we don't know the names, but more importantly, I don't see enough information about how you maintain the sanctions. When they announced um, unexplained wealth uh, orders before, I mean, it's fine, you've got the fucking legislative mechanism, but you're not putting in any funding to the authorities to track these guys down and to implement them. So they would sit, they've sat in front of select committees and gone, look, I need the money. If I don't have the money, I know it's just this slush of filth. You've given me the weapons, but you don't have the money to find this stuff. And at the moment, that seems to me the detail that we're missing. And moving on to refugees, the Lords have rejected a part of the Borders and Nationalities Bill that would have created two categories of refugees to the UK. What yeah. would that have meant? Uh, for for them, including Ukrainians, it would mean that no Ukrainian could come here um, as a refugee. So you look, want to look at clause thirty seven. Uh, clause thirty seven of the bill basically says that you know it's a criminal act to try and enter into the country without a valid entry clearance. And clause ten, clause ten creates two categories of refugee: one who's come directly, by which they mean directly from the country. You will notice no one can do that from Ukraine right now. It's mm. impossible to achieve that. And a second category that haven't come directly. If you haven't come directly, you know, you can be sent, if she ever manages to sort it, to an offshore detention centre. You can be put in punishment barracks like Napier. Um, You can be separated from your family so you don't have right of reunion. And then you are then put under something, even if you achieve refugee status, called a temporary protection order. Now, again, remember, this is if you've been found to be a refugee, not an asylum seeker, a refugee. You would then have to renew that every 30 months, basically for about seven years. Um, You would over and over never know whether you would ever really be able to stay here. Just every 30 months cast into that chaos all over again and that uncertainty as to your status. That is what they would do to refugees. And that is what they will do to the next country that this happens to if they manage to pass this bill. Nemi, there's a huge backlash to the initial restrictions on Ukrainian refugees um, and Immigration Minister Kevin Foster's bizarre suggestion on Twitter that people fleeing Russian bombs should apply for visas to pick fruit. Um, I mean, there was no support, it seemed, for those positions. Is the Home Office backtracking? Is, is, is sort of public opinion um, you know, forcing them to rethink on this. I mean, it was an extraordinary tweet. Uh, it was a, a, a fake, effectively saying, let them pick fruit. You know, yeah. these yeah. people imply, well, why, why wouldn't they apply under all of the other mechanisms that they can, you know, it's just horrific. And he did delete it oh, actually, uh, under immense, <laughs> you know, Twitter pressure. <laughs> Good um, Ukraine uh, thanks him. W- w- within a couple yeah. of hours. Um, but, but to your substantive um, question, no, they're not. Um, the, the government is very weak on two fronts at the moment. And I think broadly, the war has been good for Johnson. Um, I think it is probably shoring up support. But on two fronts, they are failing. It's the London grad issue we've just talked about. And then the second one is refugees. Um, And they're not going to backtrack unless they are absolutely forced to. You know, this is a pretty Patel-led Home Office and we have got to keep the pressure up on them and make them do it. And that is, a, you know, a call to arms to absolutely everybody to be writing uh, in, uh, you know, talking to your local radio stations about it, calling, writing letters to local papers, writing to your MP about it, writing directly to the government about it. They've got to do this. We've never seen um, pr- public pressure be so effective, have we, than over the last week? Like, you just look phenomenal. where it's applied whether it's yeah. a football club, whether it's a sort yeah. of cultural yeah. institution, yeah. whether it's government, that you can shift them. So if yeah. you give a fuck, now is the time, time to, to apply it. it. Can um, I just say, do you remember when Edwina Curry, when she was a junior minister, um, said that there was salmonella in eggs and the egg industry went into meltdown, if you can actually have a meltdown. Mm. Edwina. Right? Right? No. <laughs> actually, apparently, history then recalls she was right. There was, there was salmonella in eggs. But in any event, Kevin Foster said something that was not only inaccurate, but was as offensive and as horrible as I can imagine. I mean, it was just appalling. It was never even suggested that he might resign. I actually think Cameron would have sacked him. I think probably May might have at least thought about it. But every other Conservative uh, Prime Minister, Mm. he he would have been sacked for what he said in that tweet. And when we talk about people of my generation thinking we're going backwards. When it comes right. to people falling on their sword and doing the honourable thing in public life, I th- it is appalling what is happening in public life. What, 
Well, talking of honour, um, Partygate has obviously faded into the background and uh, you know, nobody's going to remove a prime minister during a crisis like this. Do you think that, that, that Johnson has got away um, with it or will his unpopularity with voters, which doesn't seem to have changed, lead to a leadership challenge eventually? Do you think he, he's still going to be gone or could you actually now see him uh, leading the Tories into the next I I listened to Mark Harper um, on the television at lunchtime um, in that run-up to PMQs. And he was asked precisely that question. Now, Mark Harper used to be the chief whip. Mark Harper has been a, a properly critical about Johnson on Partygate. And clearly, I get the impression, uh, took the view that if he got a ticket for breaking the law, the very law that he had made himself, blah, blah, then he would have to go. And what was interesting was when Harper was asked, is that effectively still your position? He didn't mm. say it wasn't. I'm not saying he said it was, but he didn't say it wasn't. And my understanding, because um, I do still have friends in the Conservative Party backbenchers, um, <laughs> is that Partygate has disgusted so many members of the Conservative Party. A lot will depend on the May elections. A lot will depend on, obviously, what the Metropolitan Police, their decision, and when that decision comes, because if it's like next week, you can see it just not being what it should be, which is a resignation matter and so on and so forth. But in due course, the time will come, because I actually don't think Boris Johnson has, to use that appalling expression, had a good war. I think he has been seen to be on the back foot. And I thought Starmer mm. was really good today, actually, and showed that that he was weak on Putin and the... Uh, and the sanctions and so on. Um, so if not now, I think the time will come. And I don't. Th- I still don't think that Johnson will lead the Conservative Party into the next election. And you mentioned Starmer. I mean, who I think has drawn the clearest line yet under the, the Corbyn era. I mean, Corbyn's done. You know, no, people not. like John McDonnell are being threatened with losing the whip if they speak at Stop the War. Um, obviously, the Labour Party is a very different uh, place than it was when, um, you know, the independent group was set up only three years ago. What do you make of, um, uh, you're not a Labour person, but what do you make of, of Starmer's leadership in not just now, but in recent months? I, I, I'm a fan of Keir Starmer's. I, I've always liked him. If I lifted his constituency, I wouldn't hesitate to vote for him. Um, and I think he'd make a very good prime minister, he'd certainly make a better prime minister than the one we've got at the moment, but some would say anybody would. I think he's done the right thing on Corbyn. It isn't over yet, because until he makes sure that throughout the party, the Corbynites have been put on, if not out of the party, certainly on the edges. And remember what Starmer has to do. He has to win back an old, my old seat. And he will struggle to do that whilst he, and if he continues to have as his candidate, somebody who's a proper full fat Corbynite, proper old trot actually. And that, that job might be being done quietly. I'm not aware of it. Um, that doesn't mean to say it's not being done, but until it's done, Labour won't be where it should be. It's near the end of the show, so let's have some stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Um, Ian, do you want to start? Yeah, I've got nothing, mate. I've got absolutely nothing. I'm sorry. I'm not looking at the news. There's no news that interests me apart from this. And like I said, I don't have any social or uh, cultural life right now apart from (laughs) obsessively looking at what's happening in Ukraine. So the only thing I would suggest for this is just to watch, if you've got Netflix, which you probably do if you're listening Mm. to this, to just watch Winter on Fire. Like Winter on Fire is a documentary. It is a street I view of what went down during the Ukrainian revolution. It is the sort of start of the events that lead to where we are now. Mm. If you have been someone that has listened to us throughout, you know, when we were Romaniacs, you know how this podcast started. It is also a film about the European dream and what it is that Ukrainians aspire towards and why that dream led to them, led them right now towards this tyrant dictator scumbag trying to eradicate their freedom. So if you have anything to do with your time, go have a look at that film. It's called Winter on Fire and it's available on Netflix. Okay. Um, Anna, there's something you'd like to suggest. It can be Ukraine related. I think the only thing I would say is, I know it won't you know, make probably even the front pages very much, but my profession, uh, and in particular the criminal bar, I think is about to take our form of industrial action because of yet further cuts in effect to the fees of uh, anybody who gets legal aid, whether they're prosecuting 
or defending, obviously defending his legal aid, prosecuting fees as well. And the government is not keeping its promise to put fees where they need to be. And the profession is in crisis. The criminal justice system is in crisis. We don't have enough barristers because of cuts that were made when I was in government. Hands up to all of that. And we're not giving it the attention it should be given. Thanks, Anna. Uh, Naomi? Well, on uh, Ian's point as well, uh, there is... Um, a Navalny-made documentary on YouTube that's about two and a half hours long, which is all about understanding Putin. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it is worth your time if you kind of want to get into the man and the palaces and, you know, where he wants to retire on the Black Sea and all of that. It's it's it's, it's worth your time. Um, and just, a, you know, a, a story that I caught my, caught my attention before I came to the studio to record was a new European article, actually, um, bigging up Penny Mordaunt, who I've often flagged as a, an outside candidate for the Tory leadership, um, and, and then basically saying that, um, well, quoting senior Tories, whoever they are, um, that, that maybe her time has come now, mm. um, largely because she is squeaky clean on all of the stuff that the other main contenders are now pretty uh, embroiled in, in terms of, you know, partying and accepting Russian rubles and things like that. So um, apparently she's coalescing quite quite the group of backbenchers behind her. Um, Anna, you're, you're quite um, candid uh, about the Tory uh, front bench generally. Uh, Dominic Robb called a spineless tosser the other day. Um, <laughs> Penny Morden, what was, your, what was your impressions of her when she was a colleague? Well, I mean, she's very pleasant. But of course, Penny Morden's fa- great failing is that she is she was somebody who during the, um, it seems like a, a million years ago, during the referendum campaign, uh, lied, blatantly lied. Um, and they were lies that actually you know, were a dog whistle to, the, to the, the very bottom of the political pond when she quite wrongly said that Turkey was about to join the European Union and therefore, of course, we would be flooded. I don't think she used that word. That's my word, uh, disparagingly, um, by lots of people from Turkey coming over. And it was, I can tell you this, if if we had won the referendum, happy days they would have been, you know, David Cameron would have uh, not had her in government. She's, she's she's big on ambition, but not very good, I think, when it comes to ability. Dorian, what about you? You spotted anything that we should? Well, have? it is. It's not that under the radar, but it's something we haven't talked about yet in relation to Ukraine, which is <clears throat> the fate of Russian state propaganda networks, RT and Sputnik, um, banned by the EU. Uh, dropped by YouTube and also dropped by Sky because Sky gets it gets it from a satellite operator in Luxembourg, which because of the EU ban has pulled it. So there was a big debate about whether the UK, I think Starmer was saying the UK should ban RT and lots of people were going, well, then it could be a tit for tat and Russia then might ban BBC. And I think there was some uncertainty and there was certainly no sort of willing on the part of uh, the government. But it turns out that we are, in fact, tied to Europe. Mm. And that what Europe does does affect us. So Yachty is a f- and Sputnik are effectively banned in Britain because of actions taken in Europe. And I do think that it is shameful mm. um, that so many MPs appeared on it. Mm-hmm. And people like foreign MPs, people like George Galloway and Alex Salmond, of course, had shows on it. Yeah. But also quite a lot of Labour MPs are quite happy to appear as guests. I should I should point out before I've been I've been on RT before I think like in 2014 2013 I used to go on because I used to have this opinion of just like well as long as I'm not censored your mm. job is to go say whatever it is that you think in each place that you do and that just came crashing down in 2016 really where you're like oh fuck me like this this is a hopelessly naive thing did for they me to pay you have you taken Russian money yeah they did I mean they paid me fuck all they used to pay me 50 quid a go I, so I, don't, I didn't take a lot of but Russian I think those money people... because I, I wasn't worth very much money I mean no, I would have yeah, paid whatever yeah, they'd yeah, given yeah. but, they but I think it 50. was legitimate and obviously yeah, I'm not going to condemn anybody who had anything to do with, with RT but I do think that some people did rather too much to legitimise it oh, sure, certainly sure, yeah. some people suggesting that you know it was a more reliable source of information than, mm-hmm. than the BBC and stuff and I just think it's what you know of those sort of things where people should be able to look back and go you not you um, made some very bad choices <laughs> there, were certain, there were certain MPs that had a regular kind of basically had a special seat there because they were on it so often um, and it's pretty shocking and I'm glad it's gone and that's the end of the show thank you so much to Ian Dunt Oh, thank you very much. Naomi Smith. Thanks for having me. And our special guest, Anna Subri. Thank you. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. 
Hello and thanks from me to Ivana Thomas, Una Fleming, Daniel Dawson, James Lee, Sam Boostrad, Claire Harris and Nick Wiley. Many thanks and all the best from me to Arthur Case, Ben Fisher, Ruth Chenoweth, Steve Lewis, Paul Williams, Sam Hogarth, David Simons and a very special thank you to a very special person, Niall McGorty, who may or may not work for Best Britain. Thank you very much, Niall. <laughs> and thanks from me to Sam Madrell-Manda, Prakash Nathan, Jenny, Vicky Barnes, Charlie Coville, Tanya Mason, Stephen Darlington, and the man who was surely christened Old Man Blood Moon. <laughs> See you next time. In the extra bit this week, amid fresh calls from the government to ensure political neutrality in schools, whatever that may be, we are looking beyond the culture war to ask, what do we think should be taught in schools that currently isn't? Naomi, you are in charge of the entire education system. What are you going to be uh, ramming down our kids' throats? Well, my two favourite subjects, uh, sex and economics. Um, Together? Not, I mean, you know, that, that is a kink. We, we we don't kink shame on this show. So if that's Tell your us thing. about your cane slash fic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know somebody that's got um, an original painting that's a nude of canes that you was do? painted by his um, no, well, gay we, lover. We were having dinner when yeah, they brought yeah, it up, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah this yeah. is an amazing... It is an amazing In fact, the two of us kind of fell apart with joy. Yeah. Like, well, obviously, <laughs> I need that painting too. Like... That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's an amazing piece. Um, but uh, sex and relationship education, um, there are far, far, far too many opt-outs um, uh, available, particularly for uh, state-funded faith schools that are allowed to uh, basically not teach it. And it's wrong. Uh, and we need to have age-appropriate sex education from the first year of primary school. Uh, children need to be taught about their bodies. They need to be taught about what is and isn't allowed. Uh, that what, what what somebody else isn't isn't allowed to do to you. We cannot assume that parents uh, will always um, educate at home in the way that they need to, because of course parents themselves can be abusers, and so we are failing our children. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. You'll also get our weekly mini cast, Oh God, what else? Out every Monday morning. Your support really does help us keep going. Thank you for listening. See you next week.